take your copy of God's Word, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll begin reading in verse 10, or verse 10, reading through verse 17 as we continue in this series. Just embarked on it uh, through this letter, a letter written to a hurting church, a letter written by the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 10, reading through verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. Let's give attention to it even this morning. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning with verse 10. There Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Amen. This is indeed the word of the living God. Let's pause and ask for his help as we consider this portion of it together this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we now approach humbly the written word of God, your mind penned for us, written so long ago, but has clear relevance to our lives, our existence. We pray, Father, that your spirit would teach us. You've promised him to us. And so we count on that, that you would open our ears and our eyes to the truth of your word. Be kind to us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. One wise writer once says that, said that it is important that we distinguish between unity and uniformity. The former is voluntary. The latter is compelled. The former is an inner condition. The latter is outward. Unity must be the condition created in us by the Holy Spirit as we follow Him in a common goal and purpose. That common goal and purpose is to make effective God's redeeming work in Christ to the ends of the earth and until He comes again. The condition created in all of you, brothers and sisters, this morning, is that through the vehicle we know as preaching, preaching that exalts Christ and Him crucified, is that condition that has worked in you, that it might unite you around Him. Not a person, not groups of people, not those who you like more and don't like less. Christ. 
It is the power of God, indeed, for salvation. It is the power of God that unites the most fragmented of people. It breaks down the very the barriers and the walls that separated us at one time, now unites us under one head, the proclamation of the Word. Preaching is that which is fueled by the Spirit of God and unites us around one theme, the redeeming work of God in Christ. Nothing, my friends, nothing is more destructive to the influence of the gospel than strife in the church. Maybe you didn't hear me. I'm going to say it again. Nothing, nothing will more hinder the effect of the gospel and its outworking in this community, in this neighborhood that we've prayed for, like strife. In the congregation. Strife that is caused by factions and foolish disagreements over secondary matters. It has the potential to destroy. It has the potential to cause schism in the church. When we lose sight of the goal of the church to exalt Christ and Him crucified, we lose any hope of unity. Thus, the danger of disunity caused by the efforts of the evil one to drive wedges between brothers and sisters over minor issues that, compared to the preaching of the gospel, is frankly not worth it. They are indeed nothing. You see, this is the problem at Corinth. It is the issue, really, that is causing these issues of disunity and friction and strife and disagreements and a host of other things. you got one group of people that think, well, he's a better preacher, he's a better itinerant preacher, I'm going to follow him. Then you got another guy over here, well, I'm going to follow him. And then there's a third person, and then, of course, there's the really spiritual group, you know, the ones that follow Jesus. It is here that Paul begins in its context to to, to outline for us the the, the problems that, that face this church. He's been gracious to them. He's thanked the God of heaven for the grace of God that has poured into them. He has told them how thankful he is for them. He's reminded them by word of encouragement how God will sustain them. He is faithful even to the very end. And despite the problems that they're experiencing, he has confidence that the spirit of God that is alive in them will indeed change the course of the the issues that he's about to address. And indeed he does, as we have noted already from the second letter that Paul writes, how they have repented of some of these things and dealt with them. But he begins here with the question of unity and factions and strife and disagreements because it is really the root of all of the things that we're going to see throughout the entire letter. Because at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, what is it that ultimately causes strife and disagreement and disunity in the church? Pride. Me, my way, I'm not doing that, I won't do that, I don't like that, it's all about me. And that is part and parcel what the problem is here at Corinth. People aligning with other people, creating difficulties and disagreements over things, destroying the very unity of the gospel that is rooted in Christ, Destroying the efforts of the preaching of the gospel, all of it. And if you destroy that, you've destroyed it all. For without the preaching of the cross, you've got nothing. You have a bunch of moral rules that we might follow. Without the preaching of Christ, you've got nothing. And Paul sets forth here to remind them, it's not about a person. 
It's about the person. It's not about Apollos. It's not about Peter. It's not about Paul. It's not even about this faction. They say uh, they follow Christ when, in fact, they don't. It's not about any of that. It's about Christ and him crucified. He who unites us then, therefore, under that rubric, that head, as that is presented and put in front of the people every single week, we will be a people together for a common goal and a common cause. And so I'm going to show you this morning, well, this afternoon, the apostles' exhortation to agree about the gospel and focus on the main thing that will bring unity in the church, the preaching of the cross of Christ. I want to show you the apostles' exhortation to agree about the gospel and to focus on the main thing that will bring unity in the church, the very preaching of the cross of Christ. Two points as we look at this, these verses. First, we will consider the apostles' exhortation, and then we will consider the apostles' rebuttal. The apostles' exhortation, and then the apostles' rebuttal. Let's begin with the exhortation. That's what it is, indeed. It's an exhortation that comes, as verse 11 so plainly tells us, it comes by a report. It's not exactly a good one. It comes, as Paul tells us in verse 11, it comes uh, by these people, Chloe's people. Now, we don't know anything about Chloe. She's not mentioned ever again. She's referred here, and that's it. But it must be true as to what she is reporting. Otherwise, Paul would not have responded to it. Not only that, Paul understands the need to verify matters of accusation or reports, in this case, an evil reports, at the hands of two or three witnesses. You might think, well, where are the witnesses? Well, embedded in the phrase, Chloe's people, is obviously a plurality of people, but if that isn't enough for you to realize uh, that Paul is uh, much wiser than we might think here in just listening to one woman's opinion or whoever it was that said the things, if you turn all the way to the very end of the letter in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 17, we see, at least it appears, as he says, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence. Apparently, these people had come to Paul. They had brought the letter that the church at Corinth had communicated to Paul. And perhaps then, as you marry up all of these things, not only Chloe's people giving this report, then these people also would have confirmed the matters. It's not a good report. It brings reproach, indeed, and shame on the Corinthian church. Imagine if a report like that went out about providence, that there were divisions and disunity and all sorts of unhealthy practices occurring here. It would be to our shame, if true. So Paul takes this report, he takes it at face value, this source of information given. And he responds as if it's true. He responds very directly, very quickly. Now, people make reports about churches all the time. Sometimes they're true, sometimes they're not, often they're not. Which, as an aside, and it is an aside, even though it's here, 
on the piece of paper. As we talk about this church, let's try to be kind about it to one another and others. We're not perfect people. Hey, you don't have a perfect pastor, and I guarantee you're not perfect either. None of us are perfect. Let's be charitable, especially to people who don't know anything about us. Paul takes this information as it is, not pleasant, hard to hear, difficult, and he then begins this appeal. It is indeed an appeal. It's not even a command. It's curious, as I was working on this, you would expect to see there in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, you would think that Paul's about to launch into some imperative. There's not a single imperative in the entire text. He appeals to them, notice, as brothers. It's an urgent appeal. Paul does not command them, but in brotherly kindness, he addresses them not as not only image bearers of God, but as fellow workmen and Christians. The term there Paul chooses to use for brothers at Delphoi, it's in the plural, of course, but also could be rendered brothers and sisters. He's appealing to the church, to the full congregation made up in Corinth at Providence. He's appealing to them as a fellow workman and a fellow Christian. But with that said, we should not minimize the appeal. We should not downgrade it to some level of opinion as though you can take it or leave it if you want to. It's not a big deal. It's pious advice. No, no. It takes impertival. That is to say, it takes command level force in the appeal. But appeal nonetheless he offers, the root of this appeal is not his own name. It's interesting, of course, as that's one of the problems that the church of Corinth is facing, that there's some of Apollos, there's some of Paul, there's some of Cephas, there's some of Christ. Notice he doesn't appeal to himself here. It's very significant, isn't it? No, no, he appeals to the name that is above every name, doesn't he? So he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name. He doesn't appeal to his authorship, his apostleship. He could have easily done that. But he appeals to the name that is above every name, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the root of which he makes this appeal, the name of Christ. Carrying with it substantial implications as one, as we've seen already, that these people know who this Savior is, that they have been united to Him. Verse 9, outside of our passage, but nonetheless a reminder that they have been united to this name. The key word, of course, is that they've been united, not only to Him, but to one another. They've been guaranteed, as a result, safe passage to their heavenly rest in Christ. They've been granted a faithful God through Christ. All of it, Paul appeals to the name of Christ. The urgency is one of the highest order. The root of it is the, the name of Jesus Christ and Him only, not to His apostleship, but then there's the nature of it. The nature of the appeal. He doesn't waste any time, does he? He moves right to the problem. He must have been a Yankee. Maybe he lived in northern Israel. He moves to the nature of the problem immediately. 
He expresses the matter in general terms, undoubtedly, but perhaps he is not willing to embarrass the church. It's a lesson, I think, pastorally. When dealing with sensitive matters in the church, oftentimes this is the place I'll do it. I don't know if you know that or not, but now you do. I don't name names, but I can assure you that in the study and as I work on texts, you know, as Paul is writing this to specific people with specific people in mind, I too have people in mind. It's what it looks like to shepherd, to pastor a church. But he doesn't embarrass anybody. He speaks in general terms. He's not interested in doing that. He wants to address them pastorally, but he wants to not take away the force of the matter. He wants to show them the nature of this appeal. He's not willing to heap upon them any more damage that is already done. And so he begins by stating first a positive directive. I urge you, I appeal to you, brothers, sisters, not in my name, but in the name of Christ, that all of you agree. Now, this implies, of course, doesn't it, that, uh, that they aren't agreeing, right? That's come to my Sunday school class. You can learn about observation. That's, there it is. It's there. It has to be. If they're not, if they're, the appeal is to agree, then it's clear that they're not, at least at some level. What is it that they should be in agreement about in the life of the church, you might ask? They should be in agreement about matters reflecting the life and doctrine of the church. Namely, they should be in agreement around the terms of the gospel of Christ. This is a problem for them right now. That which united them is being torn asunder. Now, every church is going to have differences. I've said this before. I'll probably say it a thousand more times before I die. Hopefully it won't be today or in the middle of the sermon. You put enough sinners in a room, you're bound to have differences, disagreements. Most of them are petty. That wasn't the word that went through my head. Most of them are unnecessary. Most of them, are, it, it, most of them have the potential to be very, very destructive. Satan uses it. He doesn't need much either to get it going. Every church is going to have these kinds of difficulties. This is why even theological difficulties is precisely why we have a new members class. So you might know and understand precisely what this church stands for and what it believes. As I've said to many, what you see is what you get. Probably not changing. Ordinary means of grace. This is what we're about. It's why you're taught our doctrines. We have standards of the church. We don't expect the members to agree with every jot and tittle of the Westminster standards, but the elders must. Deacons. You may not agree with everything that happens. You may not agree with all the matters that go on. You may not like this and you may not like that. But one thing's for certain, you know where we stand. Paul says, look, learn to live in agreement with one another. And those minor things that you can set aside, set them aside. If you really can't, then go talk to you. He doesn't say this part. This is me. Go talk to your elders. Go talk to your pastor. Have a conversation. Don't talk behind their back. That doesn't do any good. 
Don't talk to strangers. They don't even haven't know anything about this church. That doesn't do any good either. Agree. Agree about the gospel. At least start there. End there. Be united, he says, in the same mind. That is the same understanding. In the same judgment. That is opinion. One commentator states it this way, and I'm summarizing his comments because I didn't have it, don't have it in my outline, but whenever these words are placed together or side by side with one another, they typically speak of love and faith. That's to say that love trumps all. That there are times within our common faith that we will disagree, but the question is, do you love your brothers and sisters anyway? Because it's going to happen. We're not talking about essential doctrines of the Christian faith. We're not talking about somebody in the church who runs around saying Jesus isn't God. Or the pastor standing in the pulpit denying the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible. If that were the case, you'd throw me out of here on my head twice. And there's ways to deal with that. That rarely happens in the life of a church, frankly. What usually happens is all the things I've already said. The little annoying misunderstandings and conflicts. And we forget to love one another. So he says, hey, look, be united around these things. Don't, don't be in disagreement over the gospel and the hope that it offers. But negatively, he says there should be no divisions. The word there, originally, in the original, is that word in which we get schism. And I can tell you, because I read most of it, lots of pages have been written as to understanding exegetically just exactly what Paul is driving at here. Because clearly, the church is not at that point. They're still together, although they're fragmented at some level. It seems that the church had not reached that point, but they were quickly approaching it. What is it that causes divisions within the body of Christ? Paul references at least one. I'm going to give you more. I know you can't wait. Misplaced loyalties. It's clear here, as we get to the evidence of the argument that Paul is making, that this is one of the problems, at least, that's being experienced at this church. I'm of Apollos, and Peter, you know, he preached the best sermon, and you know, I'm, I'm in his group, so forth. But there are many and ones that we must be careful to avoid as a church, or we stand in danger of getting a, getting a letter much like this one. No divisions. What causes them? Remember what I said earlier about thinking about people when I'm in my study? Think. Number one, a failure to learn to be patient with one another. Boy, I tell you, you can cause divisions in the church rapidly with that one. You're not like me. You don't look like me. You don't act like me. You're not as smart as me. You don't spiritually as well off as me, theologically. Yeah, okay, be patient. You know, every one of you are at a different place spiritually. Some of you are light years ahead of me. I'm, I envy you. I look to you as an example. Some of you are behind me. And some, we're all, look, we're all at different places. Be patient. It's not always easy. I can attest to that. Second, a failure to learn to allow love to cover a multitude of sins. Well, I tell you what. We live in a 
world in which everybody gets offended over the dumbest of things, someone sneezes wrong and they're offended. I don't get it. I mean, I really, I don't get it. Shouldn't mark the church that understands the gospel. You know how many times you've offended God? I mean, how, how many ways in which should I list it for you? I don't, I mean, it'd be impossible. We've done it. He forgives us. He, over, he, he buries it in Christ. He, love covers a multitude of sins. What was that love? He gave you Christ. He gave you the gospel. He gave you hope. We need to learn to do this. Third, there are times when real offenses do happen. It's hard to dwell together as a family and not offend one another. I mean, I only had one brother, and he constantly offended me. Well, he probably didn't, but he never got in trouble, so that was an offense. <laughs> if offended, when offended, a failure to properly and biblically deal with the matter. You don't run around and tell your friends about it, and your husband and wife and whatever. You go to the person, you deal with it. If you don't, you're really offended. Bitterness is going to result. I I guarantee that. Fourth, when you are the offender, failing to seek forgiveness. Fifth, when forgiveness is asked, a failure to grant it. Bury it. Move on. Pretend it didn't happen. You know, Jesus has something to say about that. I wrote on that this week. That's probably why it was so prevalent in my head. You won't forgive others. Your Father in heaven won't forgive you. I didn't say it. Well, I did, but I didn't write it. These kinds of things can happen in a church, and there's many others that can create divisions and issues and problems. They're avoidable. If they weren't avoidable, Paul wouldn't have corrected the church at Corinth. I wouldn't be preaching about it. We'd just give up. We have the gospel. All that it communicates, and it just just doesn't communicate fire insurance and eternity in heaven. It communicates all that's necessary, how God now adopts you as holy, looks to you as as a father, takes pity upon you, forgives you for every sin you've ever committed, every sin you're going to commit, the ones you're committing now and the ones you'll commit in the future. All of it, he forgives you day after day, every time you ask, even if you ask 9,000 times for the same thing. How much more should we? who understand the gospel. Paul brings to bear that one matter I raised already, the evidence of the issue, the divisions that exist within the church by highlighting these factions. I'm going to race through this because, frankly, it's a lot of intellectual stuff that even wore me out as I read through it and wondered if it really even matter for me to even tell you this, but, you know, preaching does include some sense of learning. What are the factions? There's four. And Paul highlights for us in verse 12. Well, there's Paul, of course. This stands to reason since Paul started the church. No surprise there. It should not be surprising to see that some are loyal to him, yet even that brings the ire of the apostle. Note that. As you continue reading through the, 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 the passage, you see it. You can, almost, you can almost feel the attitude of the apostle. It's like, don't claim me. Who am I? I'm a sinner like you are. I need the gospel like you do.
Maybe there are members of the church that stood by him as the founder. The fact that some are following Paul means that some are not. Imagine what Paul must have thought about that. Can you imagine here at Providence? Well, I follow Mark, and I follow Chris, and I follow David, and I follow Pastor Bill. That means three-quarters of the church doesn't follow me. But that's not a very flattering thought. Can you imagine how? He's a man. Imagine what he must have thought. I don't know what he was thinking. All I know is what I would have been thinking. Then there's the second group, Apollos. He followed Paul. He was a strong teacher. According to Acts 18, he was well, well gifted in philosophy and wisdom. The man could really preach. You want to see a preacher, go listen to Apollos preach. I don't think he's on sermon audio, so don't look him up. But he was a strong teacher. But even he needed some of his doctrines corrected by Priscilla and Aquila. But the Corinthians seemed enamored with him. His rhetoric and style and his apparent appeal to wisdom. Cephas, which is to say Peter, because that's who it is here. Put simply, it's not really much of a surprise. If some are following Paul, some are going to pick Peter. Why? Because Paul and Peter opposed one another at one time. Should have been cleared up by now, but, you know, word gets around slowly. Probably personal allegiance, since it was known that Paul opposed Peter about his hypocrisy. Perhaps those who sought to hurt Paul chose Peter for this reason alone. Who knows? We, in fact, all the commentators will pretty much tell you that they don't actually understand all of the references here. What, and it really doesn't matter, as I'm going to show you in a minute. But then there's the real spiritual group. You know, yeah, you got Paul, Peter, and Apollos. We got Jesus. We follow Christ. That, that, that's what he says here. This is not a commending phrase. Somewhere else, under a different context, you'd read something like that, and you might think, well, that's, that's to be commended to the people. They follow Christ. Indeed, don't we want to be known for that? Of course we do, but that's not what Paul's doing. He's using it as a pejorative. He says, oh, some of you follow Christ, less certain than Apollos, and the reason people followed Apollos and Peter is this reference to this faction. Whatever the reason, there's clear division in the church. Perhaps it was because some at Corinth saw Christ post-resurrection, and they thought, well, look at us. We're really something because we saw the resurrected Lord, and you didn't, nanny, nanny, boo-boo. Those are the kinds of ways division start in the church, by the way. I'm better than you. But it isn't for noble reasons that they follow Christ. In fact, they are like those people who say, I have no creed but Christ. You ever met those? I have no creed but Christ. You people who have confessions, you're a bunch. Yeah, I, I have one creed. It's Jesus. Oh, okay. You're so super spiritual. It sounds pious. However, it is misguided. If these people were using this allegiance as a battering ram against others in the church, it is misguided and wrongheaded, and clearly that was the case. What unites this is the question. Paul uses these names as evidence to support his argument. What is the unifying issue? It's really the question of the passage. Whatever it is, whatever the reason, the summer at Corinth were following these people and using their names as badges of honor, one thing unites all of them. What unites the problem is loyalties and a tendency for disputing. As one commentator puts it, the whole church had fallen prey to a love for disputing and disputation in which various members exalt themselves by supposing their wisdom 
has been taken over from one of their renowned leaders, one of those close or well-known to them, or in some cases, even Christ himself. Look at me. I'm with the good group. I'm a Yankee fan. New York Yankees. Baseball season's about to start. Get ready for more baseball illustrations. I'm with the good group. I'm really spiritual. You over there, you stink. Don't you come over on our side where we really got it going on. I could apply this to numerous different ways in which the 21st century church does this. Like those in the church who think they're superior because they homeschool and uh, the ones in the public school, they stink. They're rotten. They're no good. Let's use that. Since I know that we have both here. You need to be careful of these things. The spirit of contention is rampant within the community. It has manifested itself in these alliances, misguided thinking. And the fact is that guided thinking that should be governing the church at Corinth and must govern this church, or we too will fall prey to these things, is Christ. We unite around Christ, only Him. That's it. Christ, as He's given in the Word of God, through the preaching of the Word of God. For how else are we to know Christ if He's not proclaimed? Apollos preached, Peter preached, Paul preached, Jesus preached. They all preached. No, the problem is their allegiance is all misguided, it's wrong-headed. Their allegiance wasn't to Christ only, not to Paul. It shouldn't be to Paul or any other person. One other commentator puts it this way. He says, apparently the Corinthian churches were divided into factions on the basis of who would even baptize them. How providential is this? As I was writing that line, I thought, well, we have a baptism today. If not one, two, four. You follow me. I don't think I said baptized in the name of Bill. Not once. And so these disagreements, these contentions, they're there. Paul makes the argument. He sets forth before them the problem, a lack of unity and rallying around a a central theme and purpose The lack of it plaguing these people. Paul moves from the description of the problem to the rebuttal. To the correction. The way to resolve it. First, he highlights indeed the unity of Christ himself. There's a Christological question that the apostle gives here in this text. When he asks, verse 13, is Christ divided? Now, there is some textual question as to whether this is a question. It could even be a statement. Is he making a statement? Christ is divided? Well, that would apply, of course, to the church at Corinth. It would look like from the outside world that that is indeed the case. But can that actually be the case? If he is, then the final group would answer, well, of course, Christ is not divided. We're following him. It's those other people that are a mess. Go fix their problem. Or is it a question? Your ESV Bible renders it as a question. I think it's a question. Most commentators that I consulted think it's a question. I'll stand on the preponderance of the evidence. It seems that it's a question. He's asking a question. It's rhetorical, but it's a question nonetheless. Is Paul asking a question? Yes, it seems more likely that a question is in view here. And he has a list of rhetorical questions. Note them. 
Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The answer to all of those is no. The point Paul is making is that Christ did not die to bring factions to the church. You people are divided. You're not acting like Christians. This is not why Christ died. His death unites people. It doesn't separate people. It brings together the family of God, brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's what his death does. Now you who are holding on to these different groups within the church, you are acting as though he is a divided savior, which denies the centrality of the cross and strikes violence at the preaching of Christ and him crucified. After all, it was Jesus himself in John 17 that prayed that we would be one, even as the Father, he and the Father are one. And by the way, that wasn't a wish. Maybe if you want to. No, we are one. We just don't always act that way. But then there's also the Pauline question. He appeals to Christ in response to that last group, but really all the groups. But then he addresses his own self as he repudiates the idea that anybody would be following him to begin with like this. He mentions the crucifixion here by appealing to the crucifixion. Paul ties this verse to what he will say at the very last verse in the text, in verse 17. Did Paul die? Well, he's very much alive, and no, he didn't die for their sins. So, I mean, it's like, really, Paul, what a silly question. It's not. He's making a point. He's using the interrogative to do it. Did Paul die? Was he crucified for these people? The crucifixion is the uniting act of the Son of God to bring down the partitions that exist between Jew and Gentile. It is, after all, the crucial aspect of the entire Christian faith. As one of my pastors, as I was learning the Reformed faith, often would tell me that the climax of all of human history is in the cross. It wasn't Paul that died. It wasn't Apollos either. And certainly it wasn't Peter, even though he was crucified upside down, according to tradition. But his death didn't save a single soul. None of these people that are mentioned gave their life to redeem the Christians from their sin. It's interesting how he focuses here on the cross and then he moves right to baptism. If you're not careful, as you read this passage, you might think that Paul is, uh, is criticizing baptism. You might think he's denigrating baptism. You might think he's downplaying baptism. Well, in some sense, he is downplaying it, uh, but he's not denigrating it by any means. Look how he puts it there. Or were you baptized, note this, this phrase, in the name of Paul. Unity in the church. Factions are going on. No one's rallying around Christ in the gospel. And Paul says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? No, no. You were baptized in the name of Christ. You see, to be baptized is in the name of someone is to turn yourself over to the one in whom you were baptized. And it's not Paul, and it's not Apollos, and it's not Cephas, and it's not this faction group, Christ, you know, when we already, already demonstrated that that's pejorative. That is to say that we've been baptized in Christ. 
The allegiance isn't to Paul or these other characters. It isn't to any man, regardless of how good a teacher or preacher he is. I know we all have our favorite preachers, good men. That's fine. Is that where your allegiance lies? Because they're going to fail eventually. Somehow, Christ never does. The allegiance is to him. We've been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he owns us. Not these other figures in the text. The allegiance isn't to Paul. It isn't to any man, regardless of how good he is. Sure, Paul baptized a few. He mentions it. He even had, a, as one commentator puts it, a lapse of memory. I'm not sure I'd buy that, but be that as it may, I'm not exactly sure how to un, unravel the, the apparent statement, then retraction, and then statement again. But I think it's simple to simply say that he did baptize, but not in his name. In the name of the one who truly owns them. In the name of the one who bought the, purchased the gospel, who made it all possible, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And Paul here, doing this reference to baptism, highlights the big problem of the church. Is that they weren't heeding the centrality of preaching in Christ and Him crucified. For if they were, they would not be rallying around the various factions that were here. The centrality of preaching where he puts baptism in its proper place. One commentator says it this way, while Paul considers baptism important, all you need to do is look through his letters and you'll see that, Romans 6, Colossians 2, it is subordinate to preaching. Someone here asked me one time why the Lord's table is down there. Why is that over there? Notice the difference in the level. This is not just so you can see me. I'm not all that attractive, okay? This is not the reason I'm up here. There's an image. Preaching is over the sacraments and baptism, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Without preaching in the Word of God, you wouldn't have these sacraments. He's not denigrating it, but he is showing it is subordinate to the preaching of the gospel. Hearing and believing the gospel, unlike baptism, is essential to salvation. You know, you can believe the gospel, die, and go to heaven without ever being baptized. We have at least one example of that, don't we? And there's probably many others. Paul is not saying it's unimportant. But he is saying that when it comes to the unity of the church and the gospel of Christ, it comes through the proclamation of the word. When that's dismissed and disregarded, disunity shows up. Thus, the Corinthians need to center their lives on the gospel, not the various preachers in whom they take pride in. Paul is not dismissing baptism as important. He is putting it where it belongs. It is vitally important, yes, but it must not supplant the preaching of Christ and Him crucified, ever. That is why you should never participate in the Lord's Supper unless the Word of God was preached first. Ever. 
In this, he recognizes very simply, doesn't he, the plain preaching of the text of the Bible. Where he says there in verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize. Now, wait a minute, he just said you baptized. Yes, he did do it occasionally, but that wasn't his primary calling in life. It was, as it were, as I put in my notes anyway, it was his minor calling. Paul did do it. Very few, but he did it. How many people did Jesus baptize? I can't think of one. But he did a lot of preaching, I'll tell you that. Paul's major calling was to preach the gospel plainly, as he says so, so obviously here in verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It's through preaching that people are saved and through which they are united to Christ in that common bond, not railing around people as much as railing around the cross of Christ. As Paul will later say very soon in the very next chapter, actually, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Regardless of the individual, if they did not preach Christ, and if they do not preach Christ, they offer nothing to a hurting church and a hurting world. But I was baptized in the church. Great! Do you sit under the preaching of the Word? No, I got other things to do on Sunday. I don't like that church very much. Really? If a minister of the gospel will not preach Christ and him crucified, they should quit. Go do something else. Stop troubling the church. Paul says, look, I'm not coming to you with all the wisdom of the world, vain philosophies, and all this other nonsense that we see paraded around us all the time. And what is he doing? The plain teaching of the gospel. I preach Christ. I give you Christ. That's what I'm going to give you. And as you embrace Christ, you will be united as brothers and sisters like nobody's ever seen. The preaching we hear today in pulpits is full of worldly wisdom and philosophies of this decaying world. It is robbed of its power. It's a mystery. How is it that through the foolishness of preaching, and that's what it is, God the Holy Spirit unites the people together? I don't know. I just know He does. How is it through the foolishness of preaching can God bring dead people to life? I don't know, but He does. Corinthian church need to stop rallying around people. They need to rally around the cross and hear it as it's proclaimed and focus their attention and their hearts there. And as they do, the difficulties and the disagreements that come to the church will be easily resolved. So we keep our focus on the cross and the gospel of Christ. Yes, those things come. They sometimes come out of thin air. Sometimes these difficulties will lead to factions and political alignment around our favorite person. Hey, look, they may be good people, but they are not Jesus. And if that favorite person of, you is not, of yours is not that you align with so much, isn't pointing you to Christ, then you need to find another person to align with. Our allegiance must be to Him alone. Demonstrated by preaching that centers around Him. More important than the flair of the preacher is the message of the cross. The cross is what unites believers. 
and pushes them to agreement in the one thing most needful. The one thing most needful. And that is the gospel of Christ. As we do that here as a church, yes, we're going to have disagreements. I've been here two years. I've seen many of them. We're going to have issues. But if we seek to resolve them under the rubric of the gospel and the preaching of His word, the enemy will not get an advantage. Because the gospel is the power of God to save sinners. And that is where we as a church must be. We must remind ourselves in times of difficulty and disagreement of the hope of the gospel. And stay right there, steadfast, immovable in these things. Corinth had lost their way on this. Paul corrects them. He will continue to correct them more so as we go further. But he corrects us too, doesn't he? To keep the main thing, the main thing. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word and the reminder, even conviction of how easy it is to get turned aside to minor issues, to participate in matters of disagreement that don't matter at all. Lord, help us to see the hope of the gospel. May we see all that it means to us. May Christ always be exalted. May we rally around him, him only. To the praise of your great name, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.